My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father of the son in whom he delights. I don't know about you. Um, it's probably some of our Western culture, but you hear the word discipline and I naturally wince at that word. It doesn't sound positive or loving to many people. And yet the text clearly says here in Proverbs 3, don't despise the Lord's discipline because he loves you and he cares for you. It makes me think of Psalm 23, that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It makes me lie down in green pastures, he leaves me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness, and this is important, for his name's sake. Everything's about the glory of God. Discipline and shepherding in the Bible kind of go hand in hand. The Lord Jesus is the chief shepherd. We have shepherds here at this congregation that help us stay in the fold and the flock. Um, Anything about shepherds, they have to correct and prod. You got to yank the sheep back in line. It's for their own good, right? To stay in safety in number, to get them to that water and to that grass, to feed them. I can't imagine if you were a sheep, if it would be particularly comfortable to, you know, get staffed around and pushed around and yanked. Uh, but it's for their own good. The Lord's discipline is for our own good. Because as sheep of the flock of God, sometimes we wander and we put ourselves in very precarious situations. You can almost look like this up here. I found this humorous. Pretty, you're in trouble. You're stuck. And as humorous as that is, in all reality, sometimes we really wander. And God strays from the 99 to seek the one to find us as sinners because he loves us. I want you to keep that in the back of your mind. You think of discipline. Um, sometimes the Bible steps on our toes. But remember, the Lord is our shepherd. I shall not want. It is wanting without the Lord that will lead us to stray and it will lead to erosion in our faith and yes, even in our marriages. We're wrapping up today our series on marriage and its applications for everyone married or not of being connected, the renewal through God's story. Hope you're all uh, doing well. It's been great to sing together. If you're visiting with us, there's a guest card in front of you with a QR code. Scan that or fill it out. We just would love to thank you for worshiping with us here today. We're people of the book. We're just trying to follow what it says as disciples of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. I don't think, um, by the way, topic, kind of important. Like I said, before it's too late, we're looking at erosion, as I just mentioned. If you want to book, uh, open up your Bibles and mark Matthew chapter 16, that's Pew Bible, page 977. If you're using that Red Pew Bible, it's the first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 16, 977 of the Red Pew Bible. We'll also look a little bit in Proverbs and in James and bounce around a little bit in there. Uh, But mark your Bibles there. We'll come there in like five minutes or so. But we're looking at erosion. How does this happen? You know, when I was thinking about erosion, I think of Judas, maybe Solomon. Solomon was the first guy that came to my mind. He built the temple of Yahweh. And then he ends his life, you know, in complete idolatry. It's not good. But I want to kind of flip that and 
look at this from a positive standpoint of what our mission is as a church and therefore what we should be doing in our homes and in our marriages and in any situation in our lives to avoid erosion. What does it mean? Um, you think of the, the big sins, as it were, I don't know, what's like murder, okay? Obviously terrible. What it takes to get to murder involves erosion. Guarantee you it started with a thought, maybe a few small actions, and then someone is literally killed. Now, that's an extreme example, um, but everything starts with a thought, as we will see. And then justified small actions that lead to bigger and bigger ones. You hear people say, I never dreamed I could have ever done this. I never thought it could come to this. This is a nightmare. I don't know how I could ever do this. I never pictured myself in this situation. You've heard that from people. Maybe you've even said that yourself. There's a really horrifying story, true story, that has resonated with me. I wasn't even there for it. It was a professor and, and a preacher of the gospel. He's an older man now, but he said when he was a boy, like 12 or so, he remembers his dad was also a preacher, and traditionally people would do invitations, and an old man came up to the front pew and sat down, and he saw his dad, who's like 40, and so this old man's like double his age, and he sees his dad sitting in the front pew. I'll never forget, like I said, it's not me. This is the story of someone else. I can't forget it. He said the old man was sitting there saying, I've wasted it. I've wasted it. It's gone, and I've wasted it. And that is a horrifying story to me. There's a saying uh, that says, sin will take you farther than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay and cost you more than you want to pay. That is oh so true. Very true. This phrase, this saying, was made popular or famous in the Christian community by an apologist named Ravi Zacharias. George and I talked about him a long time ago on the podcast. I looked up to him. He was a very smart man. You can find him on YouTube and all that. When he died, though, it was revealed that he was a sexual predator and he was hiding it. It's a terrifying story. And he justified it. You can go read about it. I guarantee you at some point in Ravi's life as a younger man, he would have looked into the future and said, that is evil. He justified himself. He is faith eroded. And he looked like the man. And it was all false. The moment you and I say, that will never happen to me, is the moment the door has been cracked open and the devil will be at work. That is arrogance. You will fail. The second you say, I'll never do that. Only a fool would do that. I'll never be me. You're going to fail. But that's the mindset. We've all seen young Christians, old Christians, walk away from God's goodness whether you were raised in the church or came to Christ outside of the church, you know stories or, or people living the double life, leaders, preachers, elders, stealing money from church or running away with affair. You know those stories. And marriages and your, your friends, families. I'm talking about Christian marriages. Some of you have even seen marriages that have lasted for decades and then it leads to ruin, pain, divorce, sin, and you're shocked. Often it is slow erosion that leads to those things. It starts within the heart. 
Nate's sermon last Sunday really stuck with me when he said, you imitate God when you're merciful and you imitate the devil when you are merciless, when you are without mercy. And I just, I keep picturing that and hearing that in my head that the devil, the accuser, hates you. He's more, it's not just a figure of the pitchfork and all that. If there's a real spiritual being who should be afraid of, who's looking for someone to consume, who's so arrogant that he defies the living God, he hates you. Everything about you, he hates your faith, he hates your church, he hates your friends, he hates your family, he hates your joy, happiness, love, hates everything about you, hates your spouse, hates your marriage, hates God, and he's after you. And you are not strong enough to withstand him by yourself. Why would anybody go out into this devil-ruled world without a sword in its hand beats me? And what's scarier is it is just as dangerous to be a Christian in America, spiritually speaking, as China or the Middle East. He's looking to consume you. The devil makes sin look great. He's a million times stronger than you. And what's scarier, right? I mean... What's an analogy? If you were stuck in a cage with a a tiger or a grizzly bear, you'd probably want a gun, a weapon, something. You'd be foolish to say, I'll hide, I'll run away, I can take them on with my bare hands. You will die. You'll be eaten alive. That's a terrible way to die. And sometimes what's even more horrifying with the devil is you are being eaten alive. You don't even realize it because there's a painkiller called pleasure. and You're bleeding out. The devil makes little of marriage, and I'm not even just talking about divorce uh, divorce or adultery. You need to get out of sitcom, sewer, joke around marriage in any stage in our life and live a life that glorifies God. Like I said, how can we stop erosion? There's a bunch of texts, a bunch of examples like Solomon we could go to. I'm definitely going off the path less traveled. For those of you who are open to Matthew 16, you're probably wondering, where in the world are we going? That's fine. Just just hang in there with me. I, I promise it will take us to the source and mission of us in our marriages and in all our lives and as a church. Matthew 16, we're going to begin in verse 13, if you open up there in your Bibles. This is a very famous, well-known passage where Peter makes the good confession, as we say, and look at verse 13. When Jesus came into the district of Caesarea, Philippi. I think on the podcast we touched on this a bit a long time ago, but this has really stuck out to me just in my monthly reading. Matthew 16 really stood out to me, and for some reason I brought it to marriage, and you'll see what happens here. But Caesarea Philippi, I want to talk about that for a couple minutes. So if you like history or cults and stuff like that, this would be good for you, but pay attention to this. Um, This region is northeast of Galilee, probably 25 or 30 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. So the left side of the screen is the whole place of Israel. You zoom in on the small body of water at the right side of the screen. You get the Sea of Galilee. Galilee is where Jesus does much of his ministry. And then all the way up to Caesarea Philippi, this is where Jesus has taken his disciples. A day's journey, way out of the way to get up here. And as we're going to see, it's thoroughly pagan. Um, this is near Mount Hermon. That's, uh, that's the white caps you see in the background there on the screen. Archaeologically, way at the very bottom, this would be Caesarea Philippi down there. Uh, this is the source of the Jordan River. comes down from the mountain out of there. Uh, in your Old Testament, 
this would be known as Bashan or Bashan. That's this region, which like all of Israel is conquered by Joshua. On the eastern side, it became the tribe uh, Manasseh's lot. Um, but it has some very uh, sketchy history. It was an Ammonite or Amorite stronghold ruled by Sihon and Og. You see, Og was king of Bashan. Okay, that's this region. You add with these guys and you learn they're related to giants. Remember the giants? Og, the king of Bashan, was the remnant of the Rephaim. Uh, the Rephaim, Nephilim, Anakim are all tied in with the idea of giants. Gilead, Bashan, all that portion of Bashan is called the land of Rephaim, which you learn is tied in with um, the Nephilim. Remember the spies in Numbers 13? They're like, they're, we saw Nephilim, sons of Anak. And we're like grasshoppers compared to them. I don't know about you. I don't want to go fight giants. That sounds like a good way to get killed. Uh, Deuteronomy 2 points out that the people of this area are as tall as Anakim. Like I said, all these words go back to Genesis 6 to the mighty men of renown. That could be a whole other topic by itself. My point in bringing all that up is this region is known for those giants and those kings, those mighty warriors of old who gave Israel so much trouble. The capitals, you can see you got Edrei and Ashtaroth up in here uh, before Israel took it over. Uh, Ashtaroth, you might recognize, sounds like Ashtoreth, right? The goddess of fertility. We've talked about her before last year when I went over the kings. She's tied in with Baal or Baal. They give you either kids and crops. The Israelites struggle mightily with their idolatry. And she really has her foundation in Bashan. That's where Ashtaroth really came to be, the Canaanite goddess. So Bashan has an ominous reputation to the Jews and even to the rest of the ancient world. In Ugaritic texts, Ashtaroth is described as the long-dead abode of a deified king named Molech. You know Molech. Famously, he's the god where human child sacrifice is given to in the Old Testament by evil rituals. Remember, God specifically had to say in Leviticus multiple times, you're not supposed to offer sacrifices, your children, to Molech and profane the name of your God. I am Yahweh. Bashan is tied to these ancient kings and warriors and gods to the underworld, the realm of the dead. And God says, you need to stay away from all this. As Deuteronomy 32, 17 says, they sacrificed to demons. It's spiritual warfare. It's not just an idol. To gods they had never known. To new gods they've come to know recently. And even under Israelite rule... Look what's nearby, Caesarea Philippi, the city of Dan. What do you know about the city of Dan? Remember Jeroboam? When the kingdom split, he established idols, golden calves at Dan and Bethel. So this place is just rich, biblically, extra-biblically, with all sorts of horrific things in Israel's history. And then you go between the Testaments, the 400 years of silence, and Alexander the Great takes over the world, so you have Greek influence, and then it's named in 3rd BC Caesarea Philippi. It was named in honor of Augustus Caesar, right? And so this on the screen is what the city would have looked like, likely, 
ish, something like it, when Jesus brings his disciples to this region. The region of Bashan, or the region now, after it was under Baal, God, or Hermon, now it's Panias, or Banias, something like that. And in this city, you can see the grotto of Pan, there's a center devoted to the Greek god, Pan. Same region as all that awful stuff we went over in the Old Testament. Pan is a guy who's like half goat, half man. He's really creepy. He's a god of war, fright, fear. He's like most Greek gods, very violent, very sexual and lustful. Um, he's the center of this city. There's also dedication to Zeus. Pan is one of the few gods who could cross into Hades and return, according to the Greeks. Children would be offered to Pan by releasing them into the woods. Uh, if you zoom in on this cave-like structure over here on the right side, you see, quote-unquote, dancing goats. There'd also be bestiality, and they'd offer the goats into the cave behind that temple, into the water. There'd be gushing water out of there. There's all sorts of evil and demonic activity and pagan false worship going on here. And this is where Jesus, for some reason, drags his apostles way out of the way to get to this location. This is what it looks like uh, today. I think Nate may have been here in this spot before. You can see the huge cave where the water was, where they to tossed the goats and other sacrifices in there. Uh, I'd like to go one day. They got carve-outs into the stone where you could put your idol and deity and worship it there. It's full, like I'm saying, of evil. So here's where Jesus brings his disciples. Not a great place, spiritually speaking. Bashan's known for Molech, child sacrifice, Ashroth, Baal, going to the underworld, Zeus, Pan. They believe it's an entrance to Hades. Why does Jesus take his disciples all the way up to here, to this city? It's a good question. All right, let's finally get to the text and, and read what happens here. A lot of you know this. They come to Caesarea Philippi that we've spent all this time talking about. And he asks his disciples, who do you say that the Son of Man is? Remember Daniel 7, the Son of Man is a human who comes with the Ancient of Days and is treated as if he is the Ancient of Days, right? He receives a kingdom. And the disciples say, well, some say he's John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Others, Jeremiah, one of the other prophets. So I got all sorts of theories of who the Son of Man is. But who do you say that I am? Here is the famous line. Simon Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father, who is in heaven. This is Jesus' deity, his fulfillment, he's Christ, he's Messiah, he's the anointed one, he's going to be the king of Israel. Why do you suppose, though, that Peter says, you're the son of the living God? Why does he add that in there? Why does the Old Testament say that all the time? The living God, where are they at? They're surrounded by paganism to false, dead gods. I think that's why Peter says, you're the son of the living God. Not all this evil and paganism around us. Um, this is uh, one of those hotly debated pieces in Christian history. It was the confession, Peter. Yeah, Peter's a key leader in the church. The confession is the church's confession today. But as I pointed out, I think upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It has a very different meaning when you know the historical, biblical, and extra-biblical data behind it. This is where Jesus is taking his disciples. I don't think Jesus takes people just randomly for fun without, you know, I think he knows what he's doing. 
Upon this rock I'll build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That, that kind of gives you chills thinking about everything that's behind this evil location. Jesus is saying that he and his church will seal the devil and all evil in hell by building his church. Now, here's the question. What in the world does this have to do with marriage, right? What in the world does this have to do with marriage? I told you I'm going off the, the beaten path. I gave you all that history. Think how daunting it is. All that evil and creepy, demonic things that have happened. And then practically speaking, Jesus is a nobody from Nazareth. The apostles have zealots who are terrorists to the Romans. Tax collectors who are traitors to the Jews. A bunch of fishermen who are not educated. Uh, They don't control theology of Israel. They're not the Sanhedrin. Let alone the Roman Empire. They're all, including Jesus, are going to be killed by the Roman Empire. And where's the Sanhedrin today? Where is the grotto of Pan today? Where is the Roman Empire today? It lies in ruins. It is done. It is gone. And the church still reigns. And I want us to remember, in our lives as Christians, married or not, and as a church, what is the mission? What do you notice about this passage? I'll tell you what sticks out to me reading here. I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Are gates defensive or offensive? Do you build walls to play defense or offense? You tell me. You you build it for defense. Jesus is saying, the church, my followers, will attack hell. Who is attacking whom in your life and in your marriages? Nate said a few weeks ago, if the devil can kill marriages, he can kill the church. And that is very true. And the Bible, me, um, more importantly, Scripture, Jesus, they're not saying it's not wrong to be down and you have to play defense sometimes. That's not what we're saying. But very often as Christians, and in our marriages even, we'll speak as if we are helpless. Everything's becoming so secular. It's just becoming so hard to be a Christian. I just can't do it. Read your Bible. It's not easy. You and I have it very easy today. This is not the normative in Christian history. It's supposed to be difficult. That's the life, to die to self, to follow Jesus. As followers die. It's not easy, and we act like we're helpless. You're not supposed to be. We say, and he is, the devil's attacking us. Things are attacking me. You have tools to attack him. The church is destined to obliterate the walls of hell. If you never have the football, you're not going to win. Right? Those big football fans in here, whatever sport it is, you're going to lose if you can't put points on the board. You say, the devil's attacking me. He's hitting me. Now, flip the script. How are you hitting him? That, let's flip that. We're not helpless. God, as a father, has sent his son. He's died for us. He's lived for us. He does live for us, as John pointed out. At our time in communion, and his spirit dwells in us to go and attack the gates of hell. Erosion happens when you play defense your entire life, your entire marriage. You know, you go on vacation, you check out beaches, you get beautiful rocky cliffs, 
They look like this because over thousands upon thousands of years, over a long time, the waves are beating against it. Rocks are inanimate objects. They're not going to fight back. Good luck with that with the ocean. But they look like that because it's been beaten. But it didn't look like this over, you know, overnight. This took a long time for that to happen. And the devil has your lifetime, as long as God lets you live, to work on you when it comes to erosion. You don't have to just merely survive. There's moments where you're going to need lifted up. All of us are going to have those moments. But your life as a Christian can thrive and press on in spiritual warfare and not be the attacked, but be the attacker on the devil and evil because your God is the Lord. That is, that is why. So as we begin to wrap up here, I've just got a few practical questions. I don't know your unique situations. The application specifically is going to fall on you in your life. But I've got a few questions to help us avoid erosion in our marriages and in any status or place where you are in your life, married or not. Think about those who are closest around you. My first question for us would be, what makes you hard to live with? Why are you a hard friend to be with or why are you hard to even live with? I'm not talking about sin. I'm not talking about that inherently. I'm talking about, you know, traits, habits, things of that nature. It's probably a good idea to know how I make my spouse or other people's around me life difficult because A, it can work on that. B, it'll stop, hopefully, miscommunication. Um, I guess for Caleb, he could spend hours watching who knows what on YouTube from name the theological debate to sports highlights. Uh, I lose my keys all the time. I threw my keys with my trash in the trash can. It was dark, to be fair. I didn't know they were in my hand. I threw them in the trash. Kendall's now made me get one of those Apple locators because I, I just, it's not good. And I'm, I just turned 25 and I'm losing stuff. That's not a good sign. But I've lost my glasses. Like, I buy the cheapo Target glasses because I lose them. I misplace them. Um, you know, maybe I don't talk a lot. I'm just happy to stay content to myself. You could all make lists on why and the silly things that are inherently wrong and why you could be difficult uh, to live with. And if you think, well, I'm perfect to live with, God opposes, opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Pride says I have no faults, none, right? We each have weird things about us. And sometimes, you know what? Your good friend, your spouse, sometimes they're going to be really hard and they may not change. I'm not talking about sin. I'm just talking about goofy little things. Love one another earnestly. Love covers a multitude of sins. Right? Love is patient and kind. Here's a harder question I've got for us. Um, avoiding erosion. The second question, how do you sin? against your spouse or against those close to you if you're not married? How do you sin against your loved ones? How do you sin against your spouse? The heart is truly the heart of the problem, right? That's where all this goes back to. Matthew 15, verses 18 through 20, Jesus says, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. Started in the heart. That defiles you. Verse 19, for out of the heart, and it's interesting what comes first, Come evil thoughts. It starts with thoughts. Even the adultery, the stealing, the murder, whatever it may be. It starts with the heart and starts with thoughts. That leads to murder, adultery, immoralities, theft, false witness, slander. That's what defiles you. Which means, this is important, we need to remember this, especially when you're heated in disagreement. 
Your spouse, or anyone else for that matter, your spouse does not make you sin. You don't like to hear that. I, I mean, we're naturally like, but she said it this way, and he did that, and yeah, they probably may be very well wrong. They don't make you sin. This is tough, no, whether it's relationships or not. Situations reveal your heart. It's not, it's not it changes, it reveals your character and where you're at. That's just the brutal, blunt truth. You make you sin. You and I don't need any help. You make yourself sin. James 1, 14 and 15. Each person's tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own, not your spouse's, not your friend's, by your own desire. Desire when it's conceived gives birth to sin. Sin when it's fully grown brings forth death. It's my own desire and why I sin. Your unmet desires drive you, whether that's I want to go get in and out and you drive five hours to Dallas to go get it. Or, you know, it's something wrong. It could be good. Hey, I want to go share the gospel with this person. My desires go drive that. could be bad. I'm going to go do this and it's sin. Unmet desires drive you. So when your desires for self, for sin, I mean, obviously you're going to erode. Or in marriages, people always talk about you know, a classic argument and fight. Uh, all relationships of all kinds have obvious disagreements. James is speaking to Christians, to churches at large. But he says, hey, what causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Here's what it is. Your passions that are at war within you, that's what causes your quarreling. You desire you don't have, you murder. Perhaps in other terms, that's um, hating in the heart. As Jesus said, you covet, you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Eroding marriages and faith is a heart issue. Where are my passions? Are they to follow the Lord in service to my spouse? Or are they for myself? As I bet you, if you're in hasty arguments with your spouse or any close friend or family member, there's a great chance selfishness is involved. So I put all this together here. I need to know that my sin comes from my heart and it's my fault. It's not my spouse. It's not anyone else around me. And that you fight because of your passions, right? Here's how to be a fool according to Proverbs. Okay? Probably a list you don't want to adhere to. You might want to know. God's word says if you think you're always right, you're a fool. If you're quick to be annoyed, if you're angry and reckless, if you hate where we started, right? Discipline, correction, you don't like the shepherd, uh, you waste your money. You delight in your opinions, you're, right? You're always right. You answer before you listen. Oof. You're quick to fight. You scorn wisdom. You're, only, you're the only one who's wise in your own eyes. You only trust in yourself. You don't have peace around you. There's always turmoil. You always fully vent in anger. So if you're like me, you can find yourself on this list. I mean, there is a moment where I've been a fool. Okay, thank God I'm forgiven. I can change because of Christ. But you think about this list, my point to bring this list up is we can't just say, oh yeah, I'm a sinner, which is true. You need to pinpoint where you're sinning. I need, right, um, consider the fool of Proverbs and actually pinpoint in your marriage or whatever relationship you may have where you're sinning against them. First John 1 John 1.8, if you say, I don't have sin, you deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. Okay, we, we each are battling sin. Um, for, well, how to put this. When I think about pinpointing sin, right, a lot of you are hunters. There we go. Lots of you are hunters. I don't think, though it sounds like, based on your record, 
you guys don't blindfold yourselves and just shoot, you know, in the woods. You're not going to hit anything. You need a target. You need to see it. You need to kill it. That's the point of bringing up Proverbs, pinpointing actually where you struggle. And that's up for you. The third question is just simply, well, what can you do to improve your marriage? And it better be self-focused. I brought up 1 Corinthians 13 a few weeks ago, looking at the list of what love is and what love is not and where we can improve there. But the point here with erosion, procrastination leads to ruin. We need to figure out where I can improve now. You probably see on the top of the screen it says, three questions to address now. Now, to help stop any form of erosion. It's easy enough, like I'm saying, to say, you know, yeah, I'm a sinner, pinpoint it. Or to say, yeah, I'll love my wife as Christ loved the church. I'll respect and love my husband. How? How? What are the tools you're using around you? Are you people use the word intentional a lot. That's a good word to use it. Um, we need to figure that out. I will have been married, or we will have been married. Kendall and I come two years. That's not that long. That's why I always feel very unqualified to talk about marriage, especially from experience. But come uh, June the 16th, someone else is stealing that date, but um, it'll be two years, right? Two years of marriage. It's not a long time. Not that long time. I will say, you know, we've learned that we sin more and we're way bigger sinners than what you realize. And we've also learned, as the Lord said, it is much better to give than to receive. And then looking at other people, my own life, I have seen godly men and women, including those who are married, who you look up to, and they've erode and decay. And you're just shocked. You thought the world of them. And you're just horrified. And Kendall and I see those people in our lives. And you just realize it comes down to pride. Our pride is so evil. Your natural inclination without God is selfishness. It is sin. In pride, I'm not going to spend hours in prayer. I'm not going to spend hours in the Word. I'm not going to spend hours in fellowship or, in, or in, with marriage or brothers and sisters. And you're going to spend hours of self with arguing, with debate. In pride, you're not going to need what, you're not going to get done what needs done today. Because you think you have tomorrow. You think it's guaranteed. In pride, you're not going to confess your sin to one another. Instead, as we've also talked about, you're probably going to blame one another. James 4, 13 through 17 is just my practical thing when it comes to our erosion in faith and in marriage. Come to you who say today or tomorrow, we're going to go to such and such town. We're going to spend some uh, year there. We're going to make a profit. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mess that appears for a little a little time. He vanishes. You're gone. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills to do this or that, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Procrastination comes really back to pride. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is a sin. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. Some of you now are suffering in your faith and relationships, and someone out here also is suffering in your marriage. And I would plead with you, and the text would plead with you, is don't wait till tomorrow. It doesn't mean you're going to sit down and fix everything, you know, like that, and whatever your situation might be in your faith or in your marriage, but you need to be able to reconcile some things and get started and act now before it is too late. I mean, Scripture and me, from my experience, literally pleading with you to not wait 
It is pride that isolates. It is pride that says, we can handle it. I can handle it by myself. You will die without the shepherd corralling you back to the flock. We have wonderful shepherds here who love you, brothers and sisters who love one another. There are lots of tools. There's no judgment to condemn. We just want to help and push each other on to walk in the way of the Lord. Act now before it is too late. By addressing where I can improve, even our sins, you can do it now. And if you feel like in your faith or in your marriage you're failing, that's good that you see that. And I don't want you to lose heart. Don't be weary of the Lord's discipline. He is the good shepherd and he loves you. He loves all of us. But by acting now, you can go from defense to offense. That's where we need to go. You can avoid the misery of erosion. The point of marriage in all life, right, is to glorify God. We've read this passage multiple times. Let's read it one more time here as we close off this series. Paul cites Genesis 2.24. A man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it, marriage, refers to Christ and the church. I said this a couple weeks ago at a wedding. The primary purpose of marriage is to glorify God and therefore the primary purpose of marriage and its ultimate purpose is to display the covenantal love of Christ and his bride. That's offense. You have a mission to go do. Jesus said on the confession on this rock, I will build my church. The gates of hell and all that is behind it shall not prevail against it. You and I are a part of this. We get to follow our commander and savior and not merely survive but thrive. And even if you are struggling in your faith and in your marriage, the story of the Bible is one of renewal. The Lord redeems the unredeemable. Do not be weary of the Lord's discipline. He loves you. He is your shepherd and the good shepherd has laid down his life for you. And therefore, you can be a disciple and attack the gates of hell as we have one another in the Lord Jesus. If you need prayers, or if you do need saved from hell, by the mercy and love of God, we have waters here to be baptized. Whatever way we can help you, please talk to someone or come forward while we stand and sing.